Okay, uh, we are now moving on to the third sort of replacement. This is the land promise. And typically, this is not so much a discussion coming out of covenant theology as it is dispensationalism. And there, and it goes something like this, is that the promise to Israel of the land given to Abraham initially has never been truly fulfilled, that the dimensions. Therefore, there yet awaits a future fulfillment because God is to be taken at his word. This, and that's the idea. So this is actually much more of a discussion of how to interpret the Bible. We usually say, I mean, I, I usually say that actually what I do, I'm just teaching courses in hermeneutics. That's all I'm doing. But if, I, if, but if I marketed that way, nobody would show up. So we say we're talking about Israel or the land or this or that. or because. But really, it's just all about handling Scripture. Okay, let's go to Genesis 15. Just use that as a starting point. Abrahamic covenant, because we left off. Uh, we'll pick it up at verse 8. And we'll go to the end of chapter 15. Genesis 15, 8, technically to 21. Of course, up to this point, well, I'll pick it up in verse 7. Uh, the Lord prom promises an heir, and then through the heir, many descendants. He also said to him, to Abraham, or his name had not been changed at this point, still Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut, cut in half. Very messy, very messy. You can't do that. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but, Adam, but Abram drove them away. Two things. Just These are just sort of separate things, but I can't help but notice. You know, for those who, you know, we live in a day and age when, you know, using animals for anything, in some circles, just eating them, is just viewed as horrific. And yet God has no problem to make a point. He's going to kill some animals. They're not going to eat them. Just make a point. Make a point. And the uh, second thing is where it says in verse 11, the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove, the, drove them away. That sometimes this has been by some commentator uh, as uh, this is the attacks on Israel from without and how God was going to preserve Israel. This is a good example of fanciful teaching because you cannot say this means that without proving it in Scripture in context. We're not allowed to guess. We're not allowed to say, I think, I see. I mean, if you're worth your salt, you have a curious mind if you're a Bible teacher. But, and it's always a temptation. But you cannot say, I think, I see. Sort of like uh, years ago, I was teaching this study and a young a couple said that they're following the teaching of some teacher from Oklahoma, and they wanted me to see his uh, manual 
So they invited me after the study. I went to their house, looked at the manual, and it was, it was a manual on the Christian life. And it was built on Solomon's throne. Solomon's throne. He has so many steps. The lion's throne. And of course, this manual, this teaching manual, each step had a significant significance for sanctification. This whole thick manual is based on this. I'm thinking, Jesus is not so good. Um, you just guys just guessing. It's all he's doing is guessing. And we're not allowed to guess. If God wants us to know the significance of Solomon's throne, I mean, that's possible, he will tell us. If he doesn't tell us, this is where the uh, types can run amok. You know, Joseph is a type of Christ. Where does it say that? There's no place that says that. Uh, of course, the classic is the Song of Solomon. You know, the Puritans, bless their hearts, Christ's love for the church. If there was a passage that quoted part, portion of the Song of Solomon with regard to Christ's love for, the, love for the church, that would be great. But there isn't any. And so, or like the old hymn, we're singing hymns, Jesus is the Rose of Sharon. That's from the Song of Solomon. Sounds, I've heard that from way back when. There's no place that says that. Just fanciful. Well-intentioned, I'm sure, but not biblical. And you do... Now, in all fairness, full disclosure, I have been accused of being too narrow. Being too narrow. And how can that possibly be? You know? But, but I'm sticking by my guns. If you can't prove it in Scripture that this means that, can't say it. Amen. Can't say it. And that does. I mean, it's a big book. So you've got pl- plenty to teach from. That's not a problem. But it keeps us from being fanciful. And a lot of times what is called deep teaching is just make-believe because you can't prove it. You can't prove it within Scripture. So when you're listening, you do. You are challenged in a good way, in a loving way, but you are challenging the speaker, the Bible teacher, to convince you that he has a right to take Scripture this way. You are challenging him. And that's perfectly proper. You shouldn't believe it unless you're absolutely convinced. You don't give him the benefit of the doubt. You don't do that. because Not because you don't care for him, but because Scripture is so important. Scripture is so important. So anyways, that's just kind of getting off my chest. Anyways, that's just... Well, I was going to ask a question. What? <laughs> What's your question? No, actually, I was... Those are typically this, there's really the sampling of the requirements of the Mosaic law for sacrifice. But that's just an observing. That's observing. That's all it is, is observing. I don't think it's covered in no. no, it's not. And we call this a self maledictory oath. That is, God is calling a curse upon himself if I don't keep my word. God's kind of coming down to our level as it were, or Calvin would say, at times God gets down on all, all fours and he lisps to us. He gets down on our level. And this is, the, God is obviously God of his word, but in order to drive home the point, because remember, the Abrahamic covenant, this is the unfolding of his plan. 
have the people, take them into his land. So let's pick it up. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to, to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. Of course, that's Egypt. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You know, after the Exodus, Egypt has never been a great power from that point on in world history. Egypt has never been. You, however, go, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Things are bad enough. The Amorites have to get really bad, and then we'll do this. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, symbolizing God. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the Wadi of Egypt, not the Nile, it's the Wadi of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites, Megabites, and the Mosquito Bites. Okay, so this is the origin. This is rather obvious, but it's the Abrahamic covenant, this land, very specific boundaries, very specific, are given. Now, what we're going to see that this is fulfilled in the old covenant because it's a physical people and a physical land in the old covenant. Okay, now, so let's go Joshua 11. So let's begin our little survey. Joshua 11. And let's go down to the end, because there are, in the book of Joshua, he has two military campaigns, one to the north, one to the south, conquers the land, that's the idea. So here in verse 23 is a summary of his campaign. It says, so Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to the tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Okay, you think, ah, oh, it's got done. Now, you go to chapter 13. Now, the NIV puts the editor's little heading, land still to be taken. And it says, when Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. Oh, well, didn't I just read in 11.1 that, or 11.23, Joshua took the entire land. Okay, so lest, we, lest we're troubled, go to chapter 21 and verses 43 to 45, the very last paragraph. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their enemy, to their ancestors. Not one other enemies withstood them. 
The Lord gave all their enemies into their, land, into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises. Not, no, we're not talking about the bad promises, just the good ones. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Okay. Lest you get the wrong impression, turn to Judges chapter 2. This is just interesting. Now, we're going to read 20 to 23 of Judges chapter 2. In light of what we read in Joshua. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors, and as, that's the old covenant, and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Didn't do it. Okay. Was the promise to physical Israel, the land promise, was it fulfilled? Well, he says yes. Was it God's intention to conquer every square foot of the land of Canaan to fulfill the promise? No. No. It's kind of like the Iraqi war. You know, they announced victory. What they meant was all of the main areas of Iraq were conquered. There were outlying areas that were not conquered, still yet to be mopped up. But we said, victory, we, we won it. Well, that's kind of like the same thing. So here, God is giving us his definition, at least of this specific prophecy. What does it mean to be fulfilled? God is giving us his definition, which is maybe not what we would expect. So I think the dispensational critique that the land promise has yet to be fulfilled, I don't think is valid. Because God says, yes, it is. It has been fulfilled. It's just he had no intention of meaning every square foot. No intention. It's not until the time of David that the Jebusites actually be, were forced out of Jerusalem. That's a figure ju judges. So let's sort of play the time game somewhere around what is it, uh, 1400? So even, let's throw in some time. 1300, David is 1000. So at least, at least 300 years goes by before they actually push some people out. So, so as far as interpreting scripture, let God interpret his own word. Let God interpret. And we have, we have to be you know, satisfied with that. So, to, in, so from my point of view, this is fulfilled prophecy. The literal land promise to Israel is fulfilled. Okay, let's turn then. Let, let's go to the New Testament. So let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter. We're going to start the chapter 3, verse 7. And we're going to work our way through chapter 4 through verse 11. Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, three, 
beginning at verse 7. 3, 7 through 4, 11. So that's where we're going to wander through. Okay. Beginning at verse 7. Now remember, the book of Hebrews is a very different book. And that's what causes a little bit of a problem because it's unlike any of Paul's letters or any, any of the other books because it's a series of warning and comfort passages, one after the other, a series of them. Because these guys who are the subject matter, professed believers who are Jewish, they're in danger of not persevering. So he warns them what's going to happen if you don't persevere, and he comforts them, God's going to take care of you. Don't, you know, this, don't, you know, don't, uh, or remember to stay the course. The famous biblical line from the Patriot. Stay the course. Okay, so that's where we're at. So the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. So a reference back, Psalm 8, as you did in rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Actually, no, it's uh, Psalm 95. During the time of testing, where your ancestors tested and tried me. So this 40 years. Though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. And this is the first generation out of Egypt. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. So that first generation that Moses led out of Egypt in the Exodus was not allowed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Because it says it. Then he jumps and he goes, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you, coming back to the present, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. These guys are in danger. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, perseverance. As, as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. So he's hearkening back to Israel in those first 40 years. Then it says this, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not to those who sinned? Whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? That is, enter the land of Canaan. If not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So, by the way, the first generation, not believing, as well as every other generation. But that's the first one. You thought, if anybody's going to believe, they saw all these amazing miracles, that they'd be fine. But that wasn't the case. So then he moves. Therefore, now we're in chapter 4, which is where we want to focus. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands. You go, wait a minute. That promise was fulfilled, entering his rest. That's the promised land. He says, wait a second. 
The promise of entering his rest still stands. That is, it still awaits fulfillment. You go, but we just read in Joshua. It was fulfilled, which it was. The physical promise of the land was fulfilled. That is the picture. It was, it was the promised land, had some weeds, a lot, a lot of other stuff, but it was still land of milk and honey from a certain point of view. But it's only a temporary picture of a future fulfillment. Because it's tied to the old covenant, it's going to have an ending point, the cross. And all the national promises to Israel are all tied to that, to the old covenant. That's like the physical land promise is tied to it. And so now, after Pentecost, the book of Hebrews, he says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. Whoa. You're saying, whoa, I I, I hadn't thought of that. That there is something more to the land promise. Something more. I thought it was fulfilled, but no, 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 there's something more. That's like I thought Israel's the people of God. Because no, 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 there's something more. You don't understand it. Let us be careful that none of you be found to to have fallen short of it. What he's saying is, if you persevere in your faith, you will enter a land that will never end. This is what the land promise was ultimately all about, eternal life. This is what it was all about. Not about the literal land of Canaan. Geographical boundaries. That's just a temporary picture of an ultimate fulfillment that's going to last forever. So when Jesus comes back, he, he, he you know, destroys the bad guys. Present heavens and earth get destroyed. We have a new heavens and new earth. We get glorified bodies. We're off to eternity in this perfect environment. We can't get our hands around. But it's ours because we're in Christ. Question up to this point. Yes. Well, when we look back, I think what you're saying is true. When you look back from the New Covenant era to the Old Covenant era, looking back, we talk in terms of belief. Yes, we do. Scripture does. But not in the Old Covenant era. They don't. It's, it is, they are the people of God, by definition. Uh, here, just, just... When he says in the back of the righteous, we live by faith. Yes. Take God at his word. Okay, remember, okay, in Hebrews 11, we call that the faith hall of fame. Not every... But this statement was made in the back of... Well, no, you're right. He's right. Well, that's true. It's quoted. It's quoted in Romans, right. But the issue is, in Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, and what this is, this is the people of God are taking God at his word in a difficult situation. These these guys in the book of Hebrews are in a difficult situation, and they need to take God at his word. He'll take care of them. So the Faith Hall of Fame of Hebrews 11 is a book of comfort for these guys who are in a difficult situation. But everything in Hebrews 11 is not about believers. But they still walk by faith. 
So when we get, especially we're talking about that first generation. And so if you go to 11, uh, 29 and 30, just take those two verses. 11, 29 and 30. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. So the Exodus. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. We just were read about that first generation. God's, they're not allowed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. But they did take God at his word by faith. And they walked through the, you know, the Red Sea as on dry land. So they were the people of God. They took God at his word. Therefore, they're in faith hall of fame. But they're not believers. Then it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Remember, Israelites walked around them. For seven, six days, seventh day, they walked around seven times, you know, you know, yelled, broke the pictures, and the walls came a tumbling down. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell under, after the army had marched around them for seven days. But that army is unbelieving. But they took God at his word. Difficult situation. They did what he said, and the walls came down, and they destroyed Jericho. So we need to be careful that we don't read into something because Hebrews, the end of three, beginning of four, is, it actually is chronicling that first generation. There are other scriptures that come to mind, like Ezekiel. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you know, you buy that. And during the old covenant era, God is consistently calling Israel to believe. Amen. He does that in a variety of ways to circumcise their hearts. Uh, the big one is Isaiah 55. But they're not going to respond. And they don't respond. So it, you have to balance that out where that even when Israel just outwardly obeyed to some degree, God blessed them. But that was all in spite of them. That was grace. Because they were violating the covenant still. They deserved to, have, to be utterly destroyed. And he held that off until 722 B.C. The northern kingdom, Israel, gets wiped out. 586, the southern kingdom gets wiped out by the Babylonians. But it's not as though they just got bad enough. They were bad from day one. They are bad from day one. And that's why we make the case that just a temporary, unbelieving picture of the people of God. But they still serve as a picture. They really do. I mean, that comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where this is very helpful in 1 Corinthians 10, because it refers back to them, and it says, if I... Pick it up correctly. Yeah, verse, the first, oh, really, yeah, the first 10 verses. Verse 6, pick it up. Now these things occurred, as it chronicles some of the bad things they did. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So we're to look to them as examples of what not to do. 
they were, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes, etc. Could you define Philippe, and could you also define Philippe? The Gospel of John. It's a good question. The Gospel of John will use belief in two different senses. Uh, talk about the Jews believing, but Jesus not trusting them because he knew what was in their hearts. Oh, well, that wasn't saving belief. At other times, belief is saving belief. So it's a context that tells us what type of belief it is. So the Israelites exhibited belief when they passed through the Red Sea. Okay, Was it a saving belief? No. Because it says that, no, they weren't. The whole generation gets wiped out because they weren't, believe, they, they weren't believing, not in a saving way. So they were not allowed to enter the promised land. So it's the sort of belief where, like, somebody might say... Right. It's like you take someone at their word and you do something. When God told Israel through Moses, you know, the, the, the Egyptians are at, on your heels. They're going to destroy you. He causes the Red Sea to, you know, the walls... I mean, obviously, terribly miraculous, the walls of, of water, and you walk through as on dry land, it says. Well, I mean, they took him in his word. It's a little scary, probably, walking through those walls of water, but they did. And then the walls closed in on the Egyptians and kick, killed them all. You can have belief without faith, but not faith Correct. And that's the book of James. Faith without works is dead. You could have a version of faith that's not a saving faith. Sure. Happens all the time. Then after they got through the Red Sea, they made a gold calf at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got, come on, guys. You know, it's like, it's like Sports Center. Come on, man. What are you doing? Because they weren't believers. That's the whole point. You know, it's like, you, it's like when you don't have your devotions one day, you have a bad day. You don't see, worship Baal the next day. You know, but that's what they did. That's what they did. But see, this is where this idea... Israel is an unbelieving picture of the people of God is really important and it's foundational. It is that. And that's why I keep hammering you with it. And I do. I know that. Okay. So in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, These things happened to them as examples and written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. They're for our benefit. Israel, they are the people of God. When they fell, we're to learn from them as the people of God. The fact that they weren't real believers is irrelevant. They were the people of God. And they function as an example. So we're to pay attention. That's the idea. Uh, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Should have done this earlier, but better late than never. Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 6. So it says, For you, talking about Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy meaning set apart for special use. That's the most basic meaning of holy. The, the, the idea of purity, does that, that, that is secondary. That comes after that. That's not the essential meaning of what holy means. Then it says, The Lord... Oh, the Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He just chose a group of people. He just, and, he, and he gave them people of God uniforms. Well, it also says he loved them. Oh, yeah, but all that means is he decided to treat them in a way different from all the other nations. He decided. I, in Phoenix, we are spring training going on right now, spring training. All the major leagues equally are divided between Florida, the Grapefruit League, and Arizona, the Cactus League. Okay? Now, they have, during this time, sometimes they'll have what they call fantasy camps. The Cubs, let's say. They're very popular. The Cubs will have a fantasy camp. A bunch of old guys who pay a lot of money, put on Cubs uniforms, play a simulated game. Okay? Now, you're watching the game. And you go, these guys don't look like the Cubs. They're looking pretty terrible. Well, because they are. Yeah, well, let's, let's not be, have fighting words here. But it's true. But it's because, so you look at Israel, you go, these aren't the real people of God. But they're wearing the uniform. They're wearing the uniform because it, it, is, a, it is a fantasy camp. It is a fantasy camp. Well, that's exact. No, that is well well put. That is true. That is true. Yes, but so that's the idea. That's the idea. God just decided. We don't know. Obviously, He has a reason for everything He does. He's all wise. But from our point of view, He just looks like I just decided you, you, this people, are going to be my special people. I give them the uniform of the people of God, without changing their hearts, except for remnant. Without changing their hearts. And they look like a mess. They're always going after false gods. Look like a mess, because they are a mess, but they fulfilled their role as a mess. They fulfilled their role. That, okay? So, just questions. Okay, well, the problem is, is that for our purposes here, we are only looking at Israel from a certain point of view, a biblical point of view, but not all that the Bible has to say. So, uh, example, well, it was through Israel, because in Romans chapter 9, the first five verses, it talks about all the benefits the Israelites had over the Gentiles. And there was a bucket load of them. And they, they experienced a form of the love of God that the Gentiles did not experience. That's absolutely true. Now, salvation wasn't part of it, but except for remnant, but they still experienced more love of God than the Gentiles. They did. So they were, they were his treasure possession from a certain point of view. Now you have to ask, what was that point of view? Well, you know, the Messiah comes through them. There's the prophets, there's scripture, all of this stuff, which we benefit from tremendously as believers. They didn't necessarily, uh, they benefited physically over the Gentiles, but 
very few benefit spiritually. Now, the Gentiles didn't have anything at all. They didn't have a ghost of a chance. So, where's Lishin? You know, when's the gospel in the Old, Old Testament go to China? It never does. It never does. You say, well, did he not love them? Well, in China, they experience a temporary, limited form of his love, but salvation wasn't part of it. Just like us in, you know, you know the Western Hemisphere, we're Johnny-come-latelys from a certain point of view. We're just thrilled that it finally came. And, of course, missionaries have been to China, been to all four corners of the earth, which is wonderful. But does God treat everybody equally? No, he never has. He doesn't treat you and I equally, even as believers. We don't have the, we have different sets of gifts. We have different sets of intellects. We have different sets of skills, different sets of athletic abilities. We, but we each have a unique role to play in the plan of God as a believer that nobody else can occupy. And he's perfectly suited us to do that. Whatever that is, he has, but that makes us unique, which is really kind of amazing. He choreographed putting the pieces together for your life, for my life, for how he wants to use us. So, example, your unbelieving past, we won't talk about my unbelieving past, we'll talk about yours. Your unbelieving past was choreographed as the exact past without letting you off the hook for your sin, but it was the exact past he wanted you to have as a believer how he's going to use you. If you needed to have crummy parents, he gives you crummy parents. You need to have people who don't understand you, he gives you, guarantees you get people who don't understand you. That's the way it works. So that we even can't complain about, we have to give thanks for our past. Unbelieving past. It really is amazing, but Israel, God was, was he showing favor? Well, of course he was. No. So no, no kings served him all the time? Well, I mean, you, you may have a king who is a believer, yeah. but, he, but he's like David, who's obviously a believer. But he, he's, lives, he didn't have the benefit of a family of believers because the concept of a family of believers it, it is a distinctively new covenant era privilege uh, uh, of the people of God. He, he didn't have spiritual gifts. He didn't have motivation of the Spirit, take the gospel to the world, didn't have that. He didn't have the fullness of revelation, didn't have that. Like, you think Job could have used Romans 8.28? Oneness of the body, he didn't have that. No, he didn't know. He was a bunch of unbelievers around him. He was a bunch of, you know, Joab. Who needs, who needs a friend like Joab that David had? And... and Okay. I would differ on that. If they were a real believer, if they were one of the remnant, a real believer, they would have a new heart. They they would be motivated by the Spirit of God. That's not. That's another discussion. Yes. No. I would say empowered. That's not another discussion. It's a good discussion. That would be a great discussion. And I, I see your point. My response is, it's not what Scripture says. So are you saying that none of them were saved? 
No, it's simply that, okay, let, let, me, let me make sure I put my, my uh, ducks in order. Every evaluation of Israel from the old co- beginning of the old, old covenant era to the present is that they're unbelieving. Every evaluation. I, I agree that there are a remnant of, ble- remnant of believers in there. If they happen to be a king, you see, you see something positive going on, but that doesn't change. Israel is an unbelieving, is a temporary unbelieving picture of the people of God. That's the Bible's beginning and end. The fact that there is a few ripples here or there is irrelevant. I mean, really, I don't mean to downplay because I agree with you, but that's how it, that's how it portrays it. That's how it portrays it. And that's why they're replaced. That's why physical Israel is replaced in God's plan. They were never pla- I guess what I'm saying is though they were never replaced to begin with. Oh, yes, they were. He chose them out of all the nations to put his love upon them in this peculiar way, to make him his treasure possession in comparison to the Gentiles. Oh, yes. Yes, it did. Absolutely true. That's why he loved well, well, but he says, but it, that's why we read Deuteronomy 7, Verses six and seven, he explains, guys, I just I chose you, I chose you. It's election as a physical nation, not election of salvation, but it's a picture of what we experience being elected for salvation. So it that's just the way it is. So you, I just would say, okay, I warn you not to allow the exceptions to drive what the Bible obviously says. There are exceptions. Just like Ruth and Rahab were exceptions. No, if, if I'm being somewhat flippant, which you know I never am, you know, uh, I stay you know arm's length away from flippancy. But I would say, take up your beef with God. This is how he. This is how he wrote it. And, and I see your point. I, I do see your point. But it's just that's how he wrote it. So when he says, like we were in uh, Galatians 4, 21 through 31, Hagar, Sarah, those are all unbelievers. Because the old covenant, all it can produce is unbelievers. Because it's a works covenant. End of discussion. Move on. I mean, that's what it says. Let me ask you a land question, Jeff. Were you going to talk more about the prophecies in the Old Testament prophets that Israel regathered? land is coming back? Oh, sure. Sure. We dealt with two. Right. We dealt with the latter part of Romans 9 and, and in uh, Galatians 4, 21 to 31. That was Isaiah 54, 1. But we have, we have the, uh, the other ones. Well, even like the New Covenant. Promise. Yeah, Jeremiah 31. 31. It says it's, land right in the middle. Yes, it does. It's the same thing. All, I mean, all of them do. There, there's nine of them. They all do the same. It's just repetition. But the... The people are not literal Jews, and the land is not a literal promised land. It is what those two, the people and the land, were a picture of, which is an, a spiritual Israel, which is eternal, and a land which is eternal. That's, that's the idea. So it is replaced. Both people and land get replaced in God's plan. No, uh, the concept of nations 
is a category that no longer exists in the New Covenant era. It's been abolished. God does not deal with that anymore. No. So now the book, of, now, okay, okay, this is a sneak preview since, you know, you can throw me under the bus for my eschatology. That's cheap entertainment. But my understanding of the book of Revelation is that the imagery comes from the Old Testament, both patriarchal period and Old Covenant era. So the original hearers were not lost. The basic meaning, let's say, the basic meaning comes from the Old Covenant era. Let's use that. But it's given New Covenant fulfillment. Uh, So if you're talking about the people of God in the book of Revelation, how do you describe them? 12,000 from every tribe. But do you ever notice the listing of that tribes exists nowhere else in the Bible? It's not literal. It's probably historical how they ended up, but that's another issue. But that is this, that's uh, there in Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, Book of Revelation, chapter 7. That's in a section where they call, I hear, I see. John hears the number of those who are going to be sealed, believers. He hears 12,000 from every tribe. What does he see? A great multitude that no one can number. It's the same group. It's describing the people of God in their old covenant prophetic language. And then he sees it in their new covenant fulfillment, which is the elect from every tribe, nation, tongue. Same group. Same group. But that's, that's the book of Revelation, but we're not here for that. Okay, uh, let's finish Hebrews 4. Okay, therefore, verse 1, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. That's the perseverance thing. For we also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2. And referring back to chapter 3, that first generation who came out of Egypt, they had the gospel preached to them. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Okay, notice they. We know there's Moses. We know there's Joshua and Caleb because those are the two guys that survive that first generation. It's, this is a trick question, but I'll warn you. Did Adam, are we all blamed for Adam's sin? No. What human being is not blamed for Adam's sin? Jesus, right, fully human, but not blamed for Adam's sin. So when it says Adam represented all, all within a group, not Jesus. So you just be precise. Okay, so they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, think about it. When we believe the gospel message, we come unto me, Matthew 11. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. So we stop working. We trust in Jesus to do the work for us, to get us accepted with the Father. He pays for our sins. So we're unconditionally accepted. It's wonderful. So there's a sense in which we enter a rest then. That's true, but that's not what they're referring to here. They're referring to the evidence of salvation, which is perseverance. Then you enter into an eternal rest. Because we rest in our salvation, but we're battling with sin. We live in a sinful world. So 
the Christian life is very active. But there'll come a day when we truly rest. Okay, now let's pick it up. It says this, which is kind of strange. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, well, this is the justification. You can't remember a verse. You just say somewhere because you have biblical warrant for doing it. For somewhere, Genesis 2, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So you don't enter your rest if you don't persevere. But, now what's the seventh day deal? Well, on the seventh day of creation, seventh day, God rested from his work of creating. If you persevere in your faith, you will join God in his rest. That's eternal life. It's wonderful. So it's interesting how all of a sudden the Bible is all brought together, sort of a ribbon tied around it. Because when it says... On the seventh day, God, we're to commemorate God resting from his work of creating. There's nothing more to it. There's no law. There's no Sabbath day. There's nothing like that. It's just remember, I, I finished the work of creating. Now, many years later, it, it harks, harkens back to that and says, if you persevere, you will join God in his rest. So persevere to these guys who are in danger of not persevering. So then he says this, therefore, since, verse 6, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, the elect, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, that first generation that Moses led out of Egypt, God again set a certain day, calling it today, which is the new covenant era. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, well, it says he did. But no, that was only a temporary picture of an ultimate rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, now you would not have known that if you just read Joshua, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So you have the seventh day in creation, God resting from his work of creation. All we do is commemorate that. Then we have the literal Sabbath day of the Mosaic law for the Old Covenant, supposed to rest on that day. Now we have what that literal day was a picture of, a Sabbath rest, which is salvation. And we ultimately can experience that to the full if we persevere and join God in his rest. Sort of a glorious circle that way. It all comes back. So that's why the literal land promise through Abraham to Israel is temporary. It's only a picture. We don't expect anything future because it's gone. Now we have, we, we live in a time of fulfillment. We now have the opportunity of entering into a rest that never ends. 
Far better. Far better. That's the new land. Yes, the new heavens, new earth. Right. So the replacement land is... Yeah. Is eternal. Well, heaven, then the new heavens, new earth. Right. It's just eternal life. Can I speak like a dispensation? Sure. Fire away. Why couldn't it be both? Fair enough. Because that, that's many times, that's uh, in all fairness to dispensational scholars, they will acknowledge that this is exactly what they see as they read through the New Testament, what we've been talking about. But they say, as they say, yeah, but, but there is a future fulfillment. Okay, that's clearly possible, clearly possible. The problem is there's no scripture. That's the problem. It's, it's kind of like uh, the end, Malachi, the, the end of Malachi, or some would think that's the, the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Uh, we got to throw something to the Italians. They're always getting downtrodden. Um, but it says that Elijah is going to return at the end. Matthew 17 says that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Now, would we... If you just read Malachi, would you be expecting literal Elijah to show up? The answer is yes. Of course. But that's not what Jesus says. But these are still future events, so we don't know how they're going to play. Well, no, actually, this is not. In the New Covenant era, you know, I, I think this is, this is now. Sort of like uh, Hebrews 11. Now. Not the future. Now. This is what we're experiencing. Are there any specific scriptures that abrogate these promises to yeah, the, yeah uh, Hebrews 13, I mean, Hebrews 8.13. Because those, that's the promise. Remember, because the, the Abrahamic covenant comes to us in two forms of fulfillment, old, new. Where it says, by verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated. Yes, that's absolutely true. Well, the Abrahamic covenant is the announcement of, in effect, two covenants. There's, in God's plan of salvation, first there's the picture, then there's the fulfillment. Okay, and that's why, from the point of view of before the cross, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is the old covenant. And that's absolutely true. That's easy to show in the, in the prophets. What that, That's simple. But... Galatians tells us that no, 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 no. Actually, the Abrahamic covenant is all about the new covenant, the cross that lasts forever. So you go for that temporary picture version of the land to an eternal version of the land, which lasts forever. It it, it takes the place. What? Yes, yes, absolutely correct. So so it does replace it. The literal boundaries of land in Canaan no longer have relevance to us no longer have any relevance. Well, it also says, even though Abraham was in the promised land, the reason he lived in a tent, because he knew that wasn't really what God was promising, it says he was looking for a heavenly yes. country. Yes. And so in that sense, it shows you it's not a thing. Good point. That's absolutely true. You're right. He, 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 Old Testament saints knew there was more to things than the physical. How much more, we don't know. But, but that's the one place we go for Abraham. He, he was aware there was more to it. Okay. Um, that's about it, I think.
Okay, that's the land thing. Now, we'll take a break. The next section is the last one is the law. Is the law. Where practically, that is the most relevant of all the sections as far as what is most practic- has the most practical implications for our lives as believers. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.